The conversation between Jesus and this woman of Samaria continues. Let us listen. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want or why are you speaking with her? When the woman left her water jar, then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and we're on their way to him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. In the Gospel of John, Jesus talks a lot. One of the early conversations is with a Samaritan woman. Despite Jesus being rather chatty, there are a number of reasons this conversation should never have taken place. Jesus is a man, she is a woman. In those days, it was rare, even deemed inappropriate for a man to speak to a woman in public like this. In addition, Jesus is Jewish, she is a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans did not care for each other. Racism exacerbated by violent history made this an unlikely conversation. And yet, if a Jew and a Samaritan were going to have a conversation, there's one subject that everyone knows will be put on the table. Where do we worship? She says, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you insist that worship must take place in Jerusalem. It seems like a question of geography. Where's the best place to pray? I love this sanctuary. It is easy in here to remember that we are in the presence of God. Place matters. But we also know that God is not tied to place. 
So what do we do with this woman who wonders if Jerusalem is somehow more holy than Samaria? John helps us out. He editorializes. He says, Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. That is both right and absolutely wrong. I know what John means. They did not share, Jews did not share meals with Samaritans. They did not share prayers. They did not share neighborhoods. They did not share water jars. But what they did share was history. She mentions, my ancestors worshiped on this mountain. She's speaking of a sanctuary that was on Mount Gerizim where Samaritans worshiped. But when she speaks to Jesus, the temple she refers to no longer exists. 150 years earlier, the temple had been destroyed. High priest John Hyrcanus led a band of soldiers to destroy, to raise the temple on Mount Gerizim where Samaritans had worshiped. As history goes, over time, power uh, shifted. The Samaritans later extracted revenge. Hatred ran both ways. Everybody bled. At the root of the violence was a theological claim. We matter more to God than you do. God will not hear your prayers. So she asked Jesus, do you think your people matter more to God than me? This conversation between a Samaritan woman and a Jewish Jesus feels extraordinarily contemporary to me, particularly in these February days of black history. Uh, race is a subject to which I should speak with humility because there are very few days in my life I've been mindful of race at all. I, I grew up assuming that the way I experienced the world was normative, even universal. I now recognize for people of color, there's never a day when race can be ignored for it's planted in the ground and housing covenants and it's planted in the economy and it lives in the language of our politics and it finds theological justification in some churches, much like it did in Jesus' day. I'm instructed by Dr. Eddie Glaude Jr., professor of African-American studies at Princeton. In his book, Begin Again, he states that to be a person of color in America is to do battle with what Glaude calls the lie. The lie he identifies as a broad and powerful architecture of false assumptions that insists that white lives matter more than other lives. I'm sure you don't believe that, but it is. It is the persistent and consistent teaching of America. There's never been a period, including our own, when the culture has not insisted that white lives matter most. And for people of color, I imagine it takes remarkable courage to engage the spiritual battle to deny this lie that for so long and with such persistence continues. 
And I think this Samaritan woman shows that exact courage. When she asked Jesus about where to worship, it's not a question of geography, it's a question of history. Do you stand with those who burned down my church? Do you stand with those who still insist that God cannot hear my prayer, she asked? If a Jew and a Samaritan were going to talk, this would be the question that would arise because they didn't share things except this painful and bloody history that they can't forget. It's philosopher George Santanyana who says, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Santanyana implies forgetting the past comes easily. He's got a point. In Billy Collins' poem, Forgetfulness, he writes of how easy it is to forget things. The poem reads this way. The name of the author is the first to go, followed obediently by the title, the plot, the heartbreaking conclusion, the entire novel, which suddenly becomes one you have never heard of, never read. As if one by one, the memories you used to harbor decided to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain, to a little fishing village where there are no phones. Long ago, you kissed the names of the nine muses goodbye and watched the quadratic equation pack its bag. And even now, as you memorize the order of the planets, something else is slipping away. A state flower, perhaps, the address of an uncle, the capital of Paraguay. Whatever it is you're struggling to remember, it is not poised on the tip of your tongue, not even lurking in some obscure corner of your spleen. It has floated down a dark mythological river whose name begins with L, as far as you can recall. Collins is right. Forgetfulness is the unwavering march the mind makes despite all efforts to the contrary. I find myself struggling to remember people's names. Back in Kansas City, when I would go visit people in the hospital, they had a huge parking garage. If I could find my car after the visit, I counted it as a victory of sorts. I really did. And when the chair of the committee would come to me and say, Tom, do you want us to report the session in the same fashion we did last year? I just say, absolutely. And don't tell them I have no memory of how you reported last year. I can forget just about anything. Given this reality, it is odd how there are some things I find it almost impossible to forget. For the longest time, I could not forget a conversation Carol and I, my wife and I, had in 1986 about curtains. You don't need to know the details, although I could provide them for you easily. But suffice it to say, it is a conversation that left us both a bit injured. Because of the injury, the conversation is not only remembered with clarity, but it also is a conversation that experienced something of its own resurrection, showing up in other conversations later that had nothing to do with curtains. Satyana says, remember the past or you're condemned to repeat it. But when the past involves injury, 
It's not Santayana who has it. It's Faulkner. And Faulkner says, the past is never dead. It's not even past. If you go to a new doctor, she's going to ask you your history, your surgeries, your medications, your ailments. Why? Because what happened in the body yesterday has implications for what's happening in the body today. The heart is the same way. The heart has a history. And what happened in our hearts yesterday has implications for what happens in our hearts today. And our hearts are shaped by experience, some good, some painful, but we carry that experience with us into new experiences and it can shape how we see the present. That's why sometimes in heated conversations that have nothing to do with curtains, I find myself talking about curtains. Jesus understands that every one of us carries history with us, sometimes dramatic, sometimes traumatic, sometimes less severe, but no one escapes injury. Sometimes you bring that injury here, the pain of a failed relationship, the lost job that attacks more than your income but levels your self-esteem, Friends betray us, or the church lets us down. A friend or a perfect stranger fails to see your humanity. There are injuries we cannot easily forget. And I don't know what injuries you may be carrying here to this very moment, but sometimes they rise up into ordinary noontime conversations when we think we're just there to get a sip of water and all of a sudden a word is said in the present and it brings the past crashing in. For the past is never dead. It isn't even past. The Samaritan woman who carries in her heart the degrading injury in history of those who assumed that they were more righteous, she asked, what do we do with this past, Jesus? And if I understand the text, he promises her that she is not defined by the evil the world has done to her. She is defined by the love that God holds for her. It is his invitation to her to reframe the lie of her past, to see the present defined less by what the world has done to her and more by what God has done for her. But to see that takes courage. I was in high school and I bought my grandfather's car. It was a chocolate brown Pontiac Catalina with 146,000 miles on it. All of those he uh, drug through uh, the, the back roads of South Carolina as he supplied hardware stores with paint supplies. He said I could have his car for $500. I gave it to him. He said I could have his car for $500 as is, is actually what he said. And I gave him $500. He counted it, 
twice and then gave me the keys. And when I got home, I began the process of removing the sugar from his car. All through the car were those little packets of sugar you could get at restaurants. They were under the seat and in the seat. It slid down the dash into the defrost vents. Every day, my grandfather would go to Hardee's for breakfast. He would get a coffee in the drive-through that asked cream or sugar. He'd say, no cream, but sugar, lots of sugar, please. He drank his coffee black, but they're offering free sugar. And so he took it every day. And at the end of the week, he would come home and bring little sugar packets, obviously not all of them, but he'd bring little sugar packets and one by one empty them into the sugar bowl on the kitchen table. He called it his little extra compensation. He did this for the same reason that he saved every can and jar, for the same reason he wore his shoes until his feet got wet and he wore his shirts until his elbows poked through the sleeves. This man was a child of the depression, and that yesterday governed every today. He never shook the fear that there would not be enough, but I think it was deeper than that. I think those brutal days somehow convinced him that he was not enough. Toward the end, he had few rational thoughts as his brain died more quickly than the rest of him. But as many days as not, he would return from the dining hall at the Presbyterian home to discover little packets of sugar that he had swiped from the dining hall table stuffed into the pockets of his sweater. I am like that man for reasons beyond genetics. We get trapped by our yesterdays, particularly by the pain of our yesterdays. In various ways, the world will batter you, deny you, ignore you, imply that it is others who really matter. For this reason, Jews and Samaritans didn't share things in common except history. But Jesus says to this woman that history does not define you. It's real, it's painful, but it does not define who you are. And he knows how the world can crucify you. He promises that there's a way to reframe that lie, to recognize we're not defined by what the world does to us, but by the love God has for us. It takes courage to trust that in the world as it is, a world that often says you're not enough. It takes courage to trust when the world says that, that it's a lie. There's a little miracle in this passage. For it seems that in John's congregation, the congregation to whom he tells the story, it was constituted by both Jews and Samaritans. They were there together. It doesn't tell us how, and it couldn't have been easy, but somehow they mustered the courage to face the truth of who they had been together, and they chose to set that life aside to recognize the former way of hating one another is a lie, 
and to embrace the truth of who they are, all children of God. And they began to share things like meals and prayers and neighborhoods and jars of water. And they began to build a new history. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe, help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray, amen.